Welcome to this super exciting episode of Freed from Feminism. We could not be more honored to have interviewed Dr. Carrie Gress, author of the phenomenal book we'll talk about on today's episode called The Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity. Dr. Gress is a homeschooling mother of four, earned a doctorate in philosophy from the Catholic University of America, and is the editor at the online women's magazine, Theology of Home. She's written for numerous publications, including National Review and The Catholic Thing, and is a frequent guest on many domestic and international news broadcasts, such as BBC, Fox, EWTN, and Shalom World Television. Apart from her brilliant advocacy for a return to femininity through the example of the Blessed Mother, she is, as you'll see, a kind, thoughtful, and intelligent woman, and was certainly an example to us of how to deliver our message of being freed from feminism in a gentle, loving, yet truthful way. Thanks so much for watching today, and we hope you enjoy our interview with Dr. Gress, and please do check out the show notes for links to her fabulous books we discuss in our conversation. God bless. Welcome back to another uh, episode of Freed from Feminism. We are incredibly excited today because we have the amazing Dr. Carrie Gress with us. And as you just heard um, on our introduction, she is just, she is a rock star for this, this movement that we're talking about. So we are just thrilled to have you. Um, and we thank you for being on our podcast today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's fun to join you. All Thank right. you. Well, I think we'll just go ahead and 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 start firing questions at you. All right. If that's okay. I'm ready. Ready. Yeah. <laughs> <All right>. Okay. <laughs> so I'll ask the first question. And my question is really based off of if if our listeners ever read your book, it's it's absolutely fabulous. And it talks a lot about the harmful effects of second wave feminism mm-hmm. and and the different um uh mainly the the gravest evil being abortion coming out of it. And right. so I was wondering if you've ever done any research on your own um, that you didn't include in your book about first wave feminism and mm-hmm. what you think about that. Yeah. You know, I actually am ha- embarrassed to say I haven't done a lot of research on it. Um, it's something that I, I want to dig into more because um, my actually my bachelor's degree is in intellectual history. And I remember going back and looking at women like Mary Wollstonecraft and um, just seeing all of these these trends that that happen with women, and certainly what we see um, with first wave feminism, but I'm absolutely fa- taken with the idea of you know what happened during the Protestant Reformation and um, how much of feminism is really a reaction to that. Because if you look at Protestantism, you know they threw out Mary, they threw out religious orders for women, and they, they threw out female saints. Um, so really, what is left as far as helping an your average woman? Um, or a theologically minded woman, how can she help be navigate? How, how can she help navigate 
all of these difficulties that certainly we find in scripture. Um, but, you know, all of those sort of guardrails that we had, um, certainly Mary as a model and whatnot, um, if those are gone, then what's happening? And of course, you, you know, we know that, that men were sort of put on this theological pedestal in a way that was different than a, than a priest because they didn't have the same kind of authority. Um, they were also married. And so that you can sort of almost see feminism really being set up um, where our, our, the woman's faith is really navigated only through kind of a masculine model because the feminine was gone. So it sort of created this vacuum. Um, so that's really an area I'm, I'm anxious to dig into more because I think that there's so much that came out of that that led to either partial truths or um, just different ways that women didn't understand themselves. And, you know, I've, I've encountered this. Um, there's a great woman that writes. She went to um, a theological college that had Protestants and, and Catholics there. And she, she describes, you know, this experience that she has with Protestant women that they, they don't have any idea what she's talking about half the time because they don't have this experience of the saints or um, Mary to really understand themselves through that lens. Um, so I think that that piece has been really corrosive and that story hasn't been told properly yet. And that that's something that I would really like to get into because then I think the piece is a first way of feminism will make sense in light of that, because you have these sort of partial truths or, you know, every denomination is also sort of um, interpreting scripture the way that they want to as well. So um, anyway, I think that that's an, an interesting piece that, um, like I said, I'd love to really dig into further. And I think that there's going to be a lot of um, rich, rich ideas that are going to help us see even more why that, you know, all of this has happened in the last century. I love that you mentioned that because I've dove into it a little bit myself and mm -hmm. we've we've actually talked on our podcast some about how, you know, secular society says first, second, third wave, maybe fourth wave feminism, right. but right. it can almost be traced back to that Protestant Reformation yeah. and especially yeah. with that lack of Mary, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I think, and, and that's always what I come back to is just, you know, the fact that Mary is, this whole movement is a reaction against her and yet she's the one that has given us the sense of that we're equal in the first place you know that that is the irony um behind all of it to me is sort of this rejection of um of true womanhood um because of the fact that it doesn't fit in with their desire for true womanhood to look like male maleness mm -hmm. <laughs> masculine the masculine so yeah, there's all kinds of inconsistencies there. But um, and I, I think that was one of the other things that, you know, was really motivating all of my research was, you know, I have a PhD in philosophy. And so I was looking for sort of intellectual threads and trends that um, would point to sort of real underpinnings, intellectual underpinnings behind a lot of these ideas. And I just didn't find them. I kept digging and digging and you just find sort of um, a lot of emotionalism, a lot of ideologies, a lot of um, kind of bankrupt ideas, um, even a lot of sort of bullying. Um, and I, I think that that's one of the things that most of us are unaware of. You know, we think that if we dig deep enough, there's got to be some sort of traction, you know, some sort of logic to all this. And it, it, it's really, it's just not there. Um, so I, I think that these are sort of deep roots that we're just now beginning to dig through. I think that will be a fascinating next book for you. <laughs> yes. Because that that everything you're saying at least anecdotally from my perspective as a protestant convert mm -hmm. it is very much true it is mm -hmm. so that's that's why protestant converts have 
such a hard time with Mary when they yeah. convert to Catholicism. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. how many examples do we have to show of, of Protestants who don't enter the church specifically because, because of our Mary yeah. and that that's yeah. always the biggest stumbling block. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, it's so much of the beauty of Catholicism. And mm-hmm. once you actually know what she's about and mm-hmm. are not threatened by her anymore, it's right. It, it opens a whole new world for you. So, yeah, um, no, that's absolutely right. And I, you know, as a revert, I, I think it's only recently I've really kind of put my ear to the ground to listen to Protestant converts and, uh, and you know, just all the struggles that they had within their marriages, um, within their understanding of themselves as a woman, I, you know, those are things that I, uh, you know, haven't had to deal with kind of those distortions. And yet I, uh, the more I pay attention, the more I'm hearing um, just the real struggles and this real, um, animosity that I and and wounds that I, I think are driving a lot of, of feminism because they're saying we're not getting the answers within Christianity, but they've got to be somewhere. So we must be finding them in, in feminism. And so it's this real struggle again, because they kind of only have half the truth. Um, and that's not uh, that's not satisfying for anyone. So I, I think that's been interesting to just kind of look at it from that angle as well. Absolutely. So moving on to second wave feminism, what do you think, you know, besides maybe, and maybe this is your answer, Betty Friedan and her book, Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. kind of sparked the second wave? How did we get from suffragette, you know, movement Mm -hmm. to the second wave? And then maybe could you talk a little bit, you mentioned it very briefly in your book about how communism Mm -hmm. um, at least helped along or maybe even... um, created that second. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that there's all kinds of tentacles that, that went into this. I mean, this was no accident that this happened. I think, you know, first off you look at just the crumbling of society because of, of the second world war and the massive amount of destruction that happened there, um, both in Europe, but also just in people's sort of general attitudes of, um, you know, let's, let's eat, drink and be merry because we really might be dead tomorrow. Um, but also just this, um, I think the way that parents are raising their children, you can sort of see this um, leftover, you know, with boomer, baby boomers, um, this idea that the parents really wanted to give their children a better life than they had. I mean, this so-called greatest generation, um, and and they were incredibly amazing people until it came to raising their own children. And it, again, was because they wanted to give their children so much um, that they they gave up a lot of the the morals and the um, religion and all of these different pieces that is what had held them together. Didn't realize how vital those were. Um, so you have this sort of generation of, of boomers who come along and think that the whole world really revolves around them. And um, so anyway, you have all these interesting pieces. And then, um, of course, communism, um, Marxism is just huge. And that that was a, a really amazing piece to discover. You know, all of all of these ideas would come to me for like three days. I would, you know, have a new idea and I would just sit and think, how did we miss this? How have we not seen that? How, how did I miss this all these years? Um, so I, I can only imagine what the experience is like reading the whole book, you know, from one chapter to the next, because of course I had months and months to digest these ideas. But um, uh, but our, in 1917, Our Lady talks about at, at Fatima, she revealed that Russia would spread it, her lies. Um, she did not convert. And I think most of us think about communism more in economic terms. And, um, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, we sort of feel like, okay, we've dodged that bullet. 
And yet I think what Our Lady actually meant was this idea that's very deep within Karl Marx and um, and all the, the um, communist efforts is this idea to sort of create a new man and a new woman um, to abolish the family. And so, you know, we've got these outsiders, these Bolsheviks that come into the Soviet Russia and they're sort of saddling the Russian people with this. You know, these people had such rich families and traditions. And um, in order to get rid of it, they had to set up the gulags and do all, there was all kinds of violence that had to happen um, to get rid of really what was authentically part of the fabric of the Russian culture. And so they introduced divorce, um, no-fault divorce. They introduced abortion on demand, um, all of these kinds of things that, and also children were sort of carted off to be raised by other people. And um, so they were were creating these ideal workers was was the idea that that didn't have these strings to family and weren't these emotional attachments and things that they saw as, as really damaging to their utopia. Um, so what's fascinating is to see how much these ideas are happening back, you know, back in the 1920s, 1930s in Soviet Russia. Well, if you take those basic ideas, you know, the destruction of the family, abortion on demand, um, the uh, divorce, um, no-fault divorce, all of these kinds of things, you can see that we took them on really just entirely in the 1960s and 70s um, in a way that the Russians didn't. The Russians knew that it was coming from an outsider, but we've sort of took it on because of the fact that it was presented to us in a very savvy way by women like um, certainly Betty Friedan. She was not herself. Um, she was intellectually savvy. She was not an attractive woman. Um, but, you know, um, Gloria Steinem, you have all these women who were incredibly attractive and they knew how to work the media. I mean, TV was brand new and um, they used it to to their advantage to really spread these ideas out dramatically. Um, you have Helen Gurley Brown, who started Cosmo magazine, which was supposed to be just the female version of Playboy. She just copied it to a T. So it, it's fascinating to see how, uh, you know, it wasn't outsiders that came in and forced this upon the United States but or the West, but it was actually women who knew how to use the media and magazines and visuals um, and all of these things to really spread their ideas. But even with among all the divisions that there were, you know, you've got someone like Kate Millett, who was very intellectual, and she's promoting feminism on an intellectual level. And then Helen Gurley Brown, of course, is using a very sensual um, sexual version of it. Um, they're not going to agree on anything except when it comes to abortion. And um, so that was really the glue that kind of tied the whole movement together, even if they had huge disagreements on all kinds of other things. And we can see this even today in the Women's March. Um, you know, who's welcome there? Anybody, unless you're pro-life, and then get out, get out, take your hat off. Um, so anyway, it's, <laughs> it's pretty amazing, um, to sort of see just how quickly we, we took this on. Um, but at the same time to see the roots of it are, are really in communism that we were trying to create this new woman who wasn't, you know, her children weren't an obstacle to her. I mean, that's one of the biggest lies is that our children are an obstacle to our happiness and our careers. Um, she wasn't, saddled to a man or fa the family. Um, so it really is this this goal being the career woman, which is exactly what the, the goal was in Soviet Russia. So it's amazing to see this pattern emerge. I had no idea that Cosmo was supposed to be the girl version of Playboy. Yeah, no, that's it was really interesting. Copy. Yeah, no, that was really, mm -hmm. really the goal. Um, I know she consulted with Hugh Hefner and 
um, even use the same agents that he did in terms of getting writers for Cosmo. And um, yeah, that was that was by design for sure. Speaking of that, Beth, can I just ask her um, to tell that story about the 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 table in her book? Because this is this is would be such an awesome story. Do you mind? Yeah, go for it. Can you tell us? Um, uh, it's the story is in your book, which again mm-hmm. we we uh, everyone must buy it. It's absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. It will it will change your life. It changed mine. Uh, but you tell this story about um, uh, second wave feminism uh, mm-hmm. in your book about how all these magazine editors got around mm-hmm. one table yeah. and um, literally had a litany, said a mm-hmm. litany about how they're going to ruin the family. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, actually it was before, they, uh, not all of them were editors, but they're all sort of the grandmothers of, of, um, feminism. So yeah, there were 12 women and, um, they were, uh, Kate Millett was one of them. Um, they met in New York and this was probably the early seventies. And, um, I got these stories from Mallory Millett, uh, who's talking about her sister, Kate, since Kate has passed away. Mallory's been free to sort of tell her story more, um, um, liberally. And, um, Anyway, so she she talks about how they would get together. Kate was deeply Marxist, and um, basically they they would say this litany um, where the, the the real goal was um, you know how do we how do we start this revolution? Um, we have to get rid of um, uh, uh, patri- the patriarch. Um, we have to get rid of monogamy. We have to get rid of the family. You know, it's 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 in the it's in the book. It's really quite chilling when you look at it because the last line is. Um, you know, how are we going to do this? And um, the way that they saw that to do it was to promote eroticism, prostitution, abortion, divorce, homosexuality. Um, you know, and at that time, this is, again, early 1970s, abortion still illegal. Um, they, they probably thought that this was just this pipe dream. And yet, if you look at where we are at right now, all of those things have been normalized and more, far beyond their wildest imaginings of what... Um, they could have done to destroy the family and to destroy men and to destroy all of us really, um, with, with this d- deep, deep ideology. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty harrowing when you see really what their goal was from the, from the very beginning, and then to just see how successful they were in, in executing this. And it was also, you know, it was done, it was done through television shows and through radio shows and through magazines like Cosmo and, um, Hollywood films and, you know, even Cosmo, um, I had the Cosmo girl and, you know, this woman was, was a were fictitious stories about her. Um, Sue Ellen Browder has written a book on this. Um, cause she was, a, she wrote for Cosmo for 20 years and she said that the Cosmo girl could do anything she wanted in the world. She could, you know, have these high flying adventures. And, um, the only, the only restrictions were that she could not be a mother and she could not be a virgin. Um, yeah. so it, it's, it's pretty amazing when you see, you know, what is specifically being targeted, not just by Cosmo, but by the whole movement, virginity and motherhood. And of course, you know, Our Lady is the Virgin Mother. So um, mm. it's very striking when you sort of see the language and what's what's being very specifically targeted, even if it's unwitting, you know, even if they didn't know they were targeting the Virgin Mother. These are the values. Um, and why is that? Because these are the ways in which women have always established their relationship um, with God, they go deeper either through, um, the call of, of virginity or through the call of, of motherhood. This is how they, they are connected and brought closer to God. 
Um, so Satan, you know, the, the grand conspirator knows that if he destroys those aspects of womanhood, then it's very difficult for us to find God. And then we give up. And um, if we, if he takes us out, he takes out the men, he takes out the children. It's very easy for him to get to everybody else. Um, we saw that in the garden of, of Eden. He went for Eve first um, for, for a very specific reason. Um, so all of these things are, are connected in, in remarkable ways, I think. Yeah. Um, all right. So to move on to the next question, um, to talk a little bit more about the contents of your book besides the history, mm -hmm. one of the sections that I actually really enjoyed from my work experience was how you talk about women at work and how they interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Because a lot of feminists talk about complementarity between men and women, which is, you know, our Catholic teaching, but they use it to say that, oh, we need men and women at work and that'll be the best, you know, mm -hmm. environment to, for a business to foster, like to, you know, succeed mm -hmm. because women are going to bring love and patience and care to that workplace. <laughs> but right. Right. <laughs> you laugh, right? And right. If, our, if our listeners right. have read the book, it's, it's ironic because in the end, women end up being the most competitive and petty mm -hmm. with each other. Yeah. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that and yeah. the research that you did? Yeah, no, that was a fascinating um, piece for me to sort of dig through because, you know, I've I've been a woman for a long time. And I, you know, remember growing up both being on the receiving end of, you know, the mean girl treatment, but also on the, the delivering end of mean girl, you know, it's sort of built into us um, one way or another. And it's, um, it doesn't end there. I, and there's a, actually, there's a book called Warriors and warriors that I, I recommend all the time. Um, and that was really kind of what helped me start thinking about this idea more deeply of um, just the way that men operate and the way that, that women operate. And the men sort of are use a much more like military hierarchy kind of understanding. Um, so even if there's there's a, a man that's not the alpha male, but he still has something to contribute, they will find a way to pull that contribution and include him in the group that, you know, he's not just cast aside. Um, but women, on the other hand, model themselves much more on a, um, uh, sort of democratic model where everybody has to sort of be the same. And if somehow you are more, um, gifted in other ways or get more attention or something, then there's this sort of sense of, we got to rein that in, you know, you're threatening all of us by, by being this outlier. And, um, and so this woman that, uh, that wrote the book, Joyce Benesford is her name. It's, it's, it's published by Oxford University Press. Um, she did all these sociological studies, you know, really around the world. And, and um, it's very, it's very thorough, and, but fascinating because it just rang true so deeply um, that I think feminism has promoted this idea that there's this um, this sisterhood that we should all have. And, and we hear this repeated often, you know, Madeleine Albright speaking about how, you know, we have to vote for other women. And um, just this idea that, again, women have these capacities to sort of heal the culture in a way that men don't. Um, and yet, if we look at kind of the underbelly of the whale, um, this, you see that this sisterhood is really very, can be very superficial thing. And, you know, one of the pieces that I loved the most was that uh, when two women are in conflict with each other, 
the way that they mask it is just to smile more at each other. Your smile gets bigger and you get happier and you're more, you know, anyway, and you're laughing because you know, this experience that, yeah. you know, we all have that. I can't believe that you're in front of me and I have to talk to you <laughs> and I'm just going to keep smiling and, um, you know, get beyond this situation. So anyway, it's, it's been interesting. I've actually had a lot of men thank me, um, for laying this out because they could never figure it out, you know, what was going on. But, um, you know, we all have sort of anecdotal evidence of hearing about this. I know one friend of mine runs a big office and, um, he would just talk about how there were the, the younger woman would come in. And then when, as they would get older, they would have all this, um, irritation against, the new women, because they were no longer the shiny, new, attractive women getting all the attention. They were just the women that had been there for 20 years and everybody was used to them and they were no longer sort of the it girls. Um, and so there was all this tension between the, the older women and the new women. And anyway, you know, all of these things, I think um, we know from our experiences being women happen all the time. And yet that's not what we're called to, of course. Um, and this is obviously one of the deep flaws of feminism is just the fact that it it puts us on a pedestal, but on a pedestal with these incredible vices that have no way of being turned into virtues. Um, and of course, this is what we see with Christianity is that these vices can be turned into virtues. We have this capacity to be very dialed into other people and their emotion and their needs and how we can help them. Um, and so instead of using them as a destructive force, we have the capacity to use them as a healing um, or, you know, life giving force. Um, but it's very hard to do that if you don't have any role models or people around you that are doing that. And that's really where we're at right now is that it's incredibly hard to find good women represented in the culture who know how to use that um, as a virtue instead of just manipulating others through through this viciousness that we have kind of inborn into us. Beth, anything, anything else? No, I, I mean, I'm just sitting here agreeing with everything you said <laughs> <laughs> because I've just seen it so much in the workplace that, I mean, yeah. sometimes it's really nice to have another girl around mm -hmm. um, who's, but it's usually more of a peer. If somebody's mm -hmm. close to your age through the same experiences, right. but as, as you try to, I guess, move up the ranks or if you're in competition with that peer, mm -hmm. it, it just watch out. <laughs> yeah, you and I mean, yeah. and sometimes they it doesn't even seem like they're trying to be mean, but you can tell behind it all that they want to stay at the top and they don't want you to come and, and knock them off. So yeah, no, and I I think that's just it from the very beginning. If you look at Eve, you know she's and and part of this is I, I say we're hardwired for this because we're we're weaker than men physically, but also because of the fact that we do have children, and when you have a child. You, you can't leave the child to go work and do other things of your own will anymore. You have to take care of that child. And so women have been conditioned to sort of figure out how can I still get benefits for myself and my child? And, you know, historically it was done by getting a good husband and, and sort of creating that environment. And yet now when you pull that piece away, what's it going to turn into? It's just this, you know, sort of this constant cat fight happening um, where, but, but this again, if you look at the, the, the cure to this, 
it's knowing that God is our father, knowing that we're loved, because often what we're trying to get is just more stuff so that we we don't feel so vulnerable um, or more respect or more fame or esteem or whatever. But if you know that you're well and deeply loved by God the Father and everything that happens in your life is allowed to happen for a reason, then suddenly those battles don't happen and suddenly that friction doesn't exist and you can sort of look at the people around you in a very different light. Um, and that's, of course, just the huge missing piece um, that, that we need to hear so so desperately. It's beautiful. And I, I, I don't know if anyone's done research on this. I'm sure they have about, um, it's extremely politically incorrect to, to even ask this question, but I would like to know what the, the rates of adultery mm-hmm. have done since women have entered the workforce at the yeah. rate that they did yeah. you know, circa right. 50, 50 or right. 60 years ago. I mean, right. Well, and I know there is research on, um, I mean, the rates of adultery since the pill even, and that obviously is the other piece of the puzzle. If every woman is suddenly um, sexually available to every man and there's not going to be any negative consequences from it, you know, in terms of a child, then yeah, that those, these, all of these pieces have kind of fit together. Um, and, and really have been so damaging in ways that are, you know, just under the surface, but they're really there. Mm -hmm. So to kind of, um, you know, not necessarily skip third wave, but, um, to, because it's, it's, it speaks for itself (laughs) (laughs) and in in some ways, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but we kind of want to, want to skip to the, the Christian, um, focus now. And, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, focus or effort to, um, to reclaim the word feminism in Christianity, specifically Catholicism and, you know, rebrand to make it, you know, this, this beautiful, you know, Christian thing, you know, right. um, St. Joan of Arc was the original feminist or, or even <laughs> right. Mary was the original right. feminist. So right. what, what do you, what do you kind of think of that? And yeah. um, is, is there a Christian feminism? Um, you know, well, I, I mean, I'm first just start by saying, I think if we look at just, you mentioned third wave feminism, I think we are now actually in the fourth wave of it with LGTB um, movement. I think it's exactly maps on exactly to the same ideology that that radical feminism has used. And, you know, you can see this um, with this idea of Marxism and this, again, we're recreating the person in any way that we want. You know, you're no longer even bound by gender. Um, And of course, we're just going to see that getting worse as um, more and more people think that this is acceptable. But, um, and and the other piece is too, with the LGTB movement, you know, instead of it being abortion per se, it's really a um, sexual disorder that is what is binding them um, ideologically. So you can see this kind of similar development of, of feminism going from abortion to then all of a sudden um, morphing off into, you know, this, this child, um, intellectual child of LGBT, the LGTB movement. Um, but as for Catholic feminism, you know, I think this is, this is, this is such a muddled and hard question because um, there's so many people that are doing, you know, great work in the name of feminism. But I, I think ultimately what I always come back to is just the fact that you've got a feminism means something different pretty much for every woman. Um, we all kind of have our own experiences of it. We all sort of define it in our own terms. And I think that that has been sort of a, a strength of it because 
you know, and one of the reasons why people are motivated to say, oh, we can find a Catholic feminism because they want to sort of explain to women, like you can jump from radical feminism to pro-life feminism. Like this is a, this is not, we're not asking you to sort of betray something intellectually um, about women. Um, but I think that it's really has gotten to the point where it just means way too many things. And it's, you, you, you can't, there's no way to re embrace it. The only thing that it has in common is roughly this idea that you're pro woman. Um, but again, no one's been more pro women historically than the Catholic church. It, it just seems like it's, it's adding, you know, you're sort of, if you try to make feminism attached to Catholicism, you're not really adding anything helpful. Um, it just ends up being, uh, kind of a, you're, you're sort of leeching off of it because it doesn't, it, there's no content there. There's again, there's no philosophy there. You, you know, it's almost like adding a barnacle to this giant whale. I mean, especially if you have an understanding of the intellectual tradition of the Catholic church and on all kinds of levels, um, to sort of put this ideolo ideology back into it. And, you know, people will say, well, what about John Paul II? I mean, he obviously used the word, um, new right. feminism, um, you know, I would say two things. I think he was a, a great master of rhetoric and uh, he really understood that he needed to try and appeal to people in a place where they already were. Um, but I also don't think that he had any idea uh, the, what the roots of feminism were, all the ideological pieces. I mean, this is a man who obviously understood Marxism um, and understood all of these pieces and obviously was trying to reject that and help women find their way. But again, because of all the splintering, it's just gotten to a point where it's not even beneficial to sort of go, um, in that direction. And I think, um, you know, even just to see it as a problem, it, feminism isn't, you know, if my thesis is right, that it really does stem from the Protestant Reformation, it's not a problem that was reacting to Catholicism. It was a problem that was reacting to Protestantism. So it's just not even the right place to be, you know, you don't add medicine to some, you know, you don't put a bandaid on a hemorrhage because that's not going to work. Um, and so it just, again, it seems like it's just a, a, an, a, you're attaching something to Catholicism that doesn't need to be there, that because we're pro-woman, but we're also pro-husband, we're also pro-baby, we're pro-family, um, to sort of cordon off one idea um, that, that you know, it's exclude or like puts a status of victimhood or specialness around it. Uh, it's just not really a very Catholic idea. So yeah, you can see I have some strong opinions about this. And I think, um, I just don't think it has, has been an effective way to evangelize. Maybe there are individuals who have been attracted to it. Um, but generally speaking, because it's so, um, what you're talking about with a Catholic type of feminism and what radical feminists are talking about, because they're so antithetical, it just seems like it's it's really hard to make the, that work in a way that's effective um, in changing minds of, of individuals or whole groups. Yeah, um, I love how you said that because I've seen that a lot where they just keep trying to reuse the word feminism because it's right. the only thing that people think means pro-women in our society today. Yeah. So yeah. if you don't say feminine or like mm -hmm. feminism, then you mm -hmm. don't mean you like women. So you have to use right. the word. But yeah. then the the detriment to it is the fact that basically they take what they like about the feminist ideology and then try mm -hmm. to fit Catholicism into it instead right. of taking right. what might still be good, mm -hmm. like small little nuggets from some of feminism, because, you know, mm -hmm. little things can come out of it and try to fit that into Catholicism instead and see if it fits. But yeah. they do the reverse. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. So, no, and, and that's the whole problem, especially when it doesn't really have a definition. I mean, I haven't, um, I, I think that's the real struggle. And, and uh, you know, we have, there is, there's so much uh, evidence of, of the pro-womanness of, of Catholicism and, you know, to sort of go back and rebrand people a feminist just because she's a woman who did set them great is, is obviously not, not right either. So anyway, yeah, I think there's a lot of tentacles and and issues and it's very complicated and I have a lot of sympathy for people who are um, grappling with this but I I just think it seems like a much easier way to go is just why don't we just go with Catholicism and stick with that and focus on that instead of um, again trying to attach something that is just really outside of it like you wouldn't you know Catholic socialism it doesn't work Um, you know there's just too much baggage there that has been unfruitful Mm mm-hmm well, Teresa, that was kind of our next question, too, was whether or not like, we could include anything from feminism. But I love how you say that. It's just Catholicism has it all. We don't need to throw something else into the package. We already yeah. got the greatest gift basket. We don't need anything else. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's a that's a great description. So, yeah, I, I, I just think it's a tremendously difficult because, again, there's been so much written on this. There's been so many so many different efforts um, to do this. But I, I think more of it stems from the fact that we don't have a good grasp of what it means to be a woman in the first place, or the grasp that we have is just not popular. Um, so people are sort of trying to repackage it. How do I make this look appealing to people? But that's what's gotten us into the mess in the first place is when you're when you're offering a distor- distorted version of human nature, it will never lead to happiness. Um, so we need to go back to the things that may not be popular, like giving birth, and um, recognize that this is, in fact, uh, you know, these are the ways that the, the women are going to be fulfilled again, rather than trying to sort of contort um, what's popular with what what um, we hope will work. So, Beth, do you want to go to the next question then? Yeah. Um, so we talk a lot in our podcast about how, one, we pretty much what we've talked about already is, is sort Mm -hmm. of facts and intellectual, um, ideas that Mm -hmm. kind of show the dangers of feminism. Mm -hmm. But our main purpose is to encourage women to, to know that women are beautiful and we have Mm -hmm. a lot to offer to this world and in what ways we can offer that best fit into Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Um, so what would you say Mm-hmm. that are would be maybe your top three suggestions about how to embrace how women can embrace their femininity and mm-hmm. bring that into their lives mm-hmm. um you know I think that's a great question and and I, I took the whole second half of my book to answer this um, the book is of course the first half is dark and painful and the second half is mm-hmm. hopefully light and hopeful um because I didn't want it to be one of those books where you just leave it you know, totally depressed and despairing about the future. But um, but it was really challenging to do this because, of course, I'm talking about Our Lady as the antidote to all this. And, um, you know, the, I guess the first thing I would suggest to women is just to look at what's being attacked. What What is it that has really been focused on in this culture? And see that that's what's on the other side. Why is that being attacked? And again, it always comes back to this idea of, of virginity and motherhood. These are the two things that are are being attacked in the culture. Um, so then it sort of begs the question, well, what's good about these? Um, and I think ultimately that the answer, you know, the very short answer is 
these are the ways through which we become holy. These are the ways in which we become healed. We become whole. Um, when we become the women that we desire to be, I mean, and this has been one of the fascinating pieces is just the fact that women long to be um, treated with respect and and feel like they are, they are dignified. And yet everything that we're doing is undermining that effort, you know, that, we, that we're, we're turning ourselves sort of into um, beasts instead of, you know, something much more, you know, elevated that we we're intended to be. So I think that that's, um, you know, have to ask that question of what's being attacked and why is it being attacked. Um, but I think that there is also um, something incredibly hopeful about looking at Our Lady and her responses to all these, again, going back to hers as um, this model. And, you know, it was funny, I, I wrote this book and I sent it off to the publisher and I have these three chapters in, in the book where I discuss the, the desires of every female heart. And one of them is to be known and loved. Um, the other is to do the good. And the third is um, to be beautiful. And I, I can talk about those more in a minute. But after the book was sent off, I was in a hotel with my daughters and someone had just said, oh, you should watch the Hallmark Channel. Um, and I had never seen the Hallmark Channel before. Um, so the three of us sat and watched um, two movies of the Hallmark Channel. And then it was time to go to bed. And then um, one of my daughters was up in the middle of the night throwing up. So we watched two more movies of the Hallmark oh. Channel. And, you know, by the fourth one, you sort of figure out what's going on in these films. <laughs> but I just cracked up because I realized, like, they've just used this recipe that I just outlined in my book, you know, that the, here's a woman. She wants to be known and loved. She's She wants to do good. She's like, saving a library or her family farm or something <laughs> and she wants to be beautiful while she's doing it you know none of these women are homely or unattractive or you know not dressed well and um but the the fourth thing and I, I don't think I highlighted this well enough in the book is that they they want to women want we want a happy ending and uh, you know this is one of the beauties of of Christianity is we we know how things end you know they don't end in despair and brokenness and woundedness um, that's not the final piece of the story, but we know that it ends with um, with heaven and with this this right. unity that we have with all of those that we love and and um, with God and the saints and um, in this sort of perfect happiness and place of of healing. Um, so anyway, I just I just cracked up because I was like, this is why the Hallmark Channel is making so much money because they have figured out these <laughs> desires of um, the human heart. And so I, I was very reassured that I, I, you know, there was something right about my book when I realized <laughs> that uh, I was on the same page as Hallmark Channel. But um, but the point is, I think that these have been really wildly neglected in in our culture when we're looking at them, um, when we're talking about careers. I mean, and they're sort of there. Um, and even looking at these early feminists, you could see certainly the desire to do good. I mean, all these women thought that they were doing amazing work by doing, taking women to get illegal abortions and, and that kind of thing. They just didn't have a sense of what the good was. Um, so I, I think that desire is there. And you can certainly see it among millennials that, you know, they want to change the world. They want to make a difference in the world. Um, and that's a very inborn, also noble kind of desire that they have. But you're not going to do that if you can't figure out what the good is in the first place. And of course, this is the gift of of Christianity and and certainly the gift of the Blessed Mother and how we do that. Um, so I think we've been told that the good looks a certain way, and yet what is authentically good looks quite different. Um, and that those are the pieces that we have to put back together because Christians in general have been painted very much as you know very doormat 
doormatty kind of women. Um, I always laugh. I have the comments that I get on some of my articles that I've written are just hysterical. Um, you know, I don't read all of them all the time, but, um, one, one went off about how I, I must, um, not be able to make my own grocery store list. And my husband must tell me, must have to tell me how to clean our home. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's pretty comical. Um, but it's just what it shows is how much they, the, the elite women of our culture have been able to sort of suck all the air out of the room. And all that's left is if you're not this kind of woman, then you must be that kind of woman. And so, you know, the mind loves to go to extremes. And so we, we don't even have a place in our brains to sort of think about what a different kind of woman might look like. Um, and I think that that's really where we have our, our work cut out for us. But again, we have to sort of address the brokenness that women are experiencing and, and try and help them figure out how to, how to move beyond that, um, in a way that they may have never seen before in a woman. Um, and yet we know that it's, it's out there. We just have to help them find it. I love that. I also love that those are the things you noticed in the Hallmark movies, because I always <laughs> noticed that the recipe for a perfect Hallmark movie is the, you know, washed up childhood star, a small yep. town, and yep. a nice looking guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. exactly. Yes, you read that. more into it than I did. So. <laughs> yes, well, That's maybe great. I was I was looking for it too, but uh, oh anyway. no, it's I, I see it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's really funny. Oh my. Well, so you mentioned that you have daughters then. Um, both Beth and I are first-time mothers. I just had my little girl um, in July. Yeah, so she's just three months old. And um, Beth is about to have her first child, I think, in February, right? Yep. Oh, that's so, so you know, we're going through these... We're, we're coming into these ideas on our own, mm-hmm. but then now, at least for myself, I'm trying to think, oh my word, how do you raise a girl mm-hmm. in today's culture where she's yeah. going to be at every single turn, she's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, indoctrinated with all these ideas that we've been talking about. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. how are you raising your girls to kind of reject this and to, yeah. to push away the, mm-hmm. the peer pressure and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm sure their, their own little friends are, mm-hmm. are already, you know, spouting these ideas to them. Mm-hmm. So how, how are you doing that? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I actually have two girls and two boys. So I think in both directions, you know, how are my, how do I raise my girls so that they are not affected by this, but also my boys, I don't want them to feel like they have to apologize um, for being boys and, you know, sort of buy into this toxic masculinity idea. Um, so, I, you know, it's it's obviously an incredible challenge. I took a picture a few months ago of a display at Barnes and Noble of all these books for young girls. And of course, it was, you know, was, um, Chelsea Clinton's book and um, that book, Strong is the New Pretty. And, you know, it was just one of these things where I was like, there is nothing in this that I would even remotely consider spending money on because um, it was just all the same you know, it's just starting younger and younger. Let's kind of start the indoctrination earlier. Um, There's so, a book called Woke Baby out there. So. It is, and the baby is looks so angry. I mean, that was, I, just, I thought, look through the pictures of Woke Baby. And it is hysterical. Or the feminist baby. Maybe I have it wrong. But there's there's one that I remember seeing in the airport about a year ago. And I looked through the pictures. And I was like, even feminist, feminism makes babies look angry. At oh, me. my word. You know, it's, just, it's really funny. Um 
but yeah, I mean, we homeschool. So that's one advantage that I have is just the, the capacity to be able to um, control what they're getting. I mean, it's not because I wouldn't love to send them to school. It's just, we don't have good options, um, you know, for various reasons. Um, but I think that that has helped a lot. The other thing I, I do a lot is, you know, my oldest daughter is 10 years old and she probably knows more about feminism than, you know, half the population of the world does. Um, just because wow. I talk to her a lot about it and just point things out and I'll, you know, if there's a commercial that I don't agree with, I'll, I'll explain to her what's going on and how they're trying to manipulate the buyer through this. And, you know, even that trend of, you know, every white guy that you see on, on a TV commercial is going to be an idiot. And there's got to be a woman that's yeah. going to save him, you know, mm -hmm. so she's aware of these, these subtle ways, both my daughters are these subtle ways that they're trying to be manipulated. Um, the other thing that we do is just to make sure that they do have great access to stories about real women, you know, just the, there's, there's such a great literary um, history there, you know, everything from Jane Austen to Little House on the Prairie, you know, all these kinds of stories that are actually showing what, um, womanhood can look like and not in a doormat kind of fashion at all. Um, but in a way that, that, you know, you see character flaws and you see characters develop and all of that. So I think that's the other, um, piece of it, but yeah, it's, 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 it's incredibly challenging. Um, I think for all of us, and I guess that's again, where even, um, you know, we pray nightly rosary and I know for a fact that that has been an incredible gift for us and has buff buffered us from so many things, um, but yeah, especially for, for my daughters to have that, um, just ingrained habit, um, that that's just what we do at night. And, it, you know, there's, they, they know, um, they're learning who our lady is and, you know, they're even just to see that the spiritual fruits, I know my, one of my daughters broke her arm, same elbow twice, um, one year. And then two years later, she broke this, broke it even worse and had to have surgery with pins put in and everything. And, um, I was teasing her. I said, you know, your guardian angel is not doing a very good job. And she said, no, it's okay. And I said, no, really, we need to like talk to your guardian angel about this. And, and she said, well, when I did my first communion, I told Jesus that I would suffer for him. And I just thought that didn't come from me. Like, I know I would never have told my daughter to oh. ask for that on her first communion. And I just thought there's these, all these things that are happening because she has this relationship with our lady that isn't mediated through me, but is directly coming from her praying the rosary. So anyway, it's, it's things like that, that I think are, you know, knock your socks off as a parent when you can see that they, they have their own faith and it's not just, you know, coming from mom. I'm going to start crying. Oh my word. <laughs> That's, so That's beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could all be like that. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Oh. And believe me, she has her moments when she, she doesn't want to be suffering for Jesus, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible to see those glimmers through, you know, daily life. Wow. All right. So one final question for you. Um, and we would just like to know a little bit more about your new book. Um, sort of a chance for you to do a little plug for it too, Great. Uh, to sell it. Cause it's yeah. kind of working into what you're saying here. So, yeah. Um, the new book is called theology of home, finding the eternal in the everyday. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because this book is, it, I think on a su very superficial level, it kind of just looks like fluff. It's there's a hundred pictures in it. And, um, and then some just beautiful reflections about home and how, um, really our homes are meant to be a foreshadowing of heaven and how do we get there? And why is that the case? And um, kind of, you know, it's like a home design book, but 
instead of asking the how, we're asking the why and just kind of going deeper. And um, we didn't want, we knew this is a book for busy moms, so we didn't want to make it too onerous and, you know, feel like you have to get a study guide and, you know, all that for it. But we just wanted it to be something that were beautiful stories and ideas that you could sort of take into your own home and, and you know, make your own. Um, but what's what's fascinating is I know that this book would never have come about if I had not done all this work on the anti-Mary. And um, I, I've just spent so much time thinking about how is it that women are absorbing ideas? How is it that we've communicated all of these awful Marxist ideas and, you know, the ideas of Margaret Sanger and whatnot? And, you know, the way that these women were successful in getting these ideas spread was through magazines, through very visually appealing um, products, whether and, and also um, television shows and pop music and whatnot. But, you know, these women weren't reading Marx and Sanger. They were reading Cosmo and Vogue. And, uh, you know, that's how these ideas have become so widespread. And I think just as Catholics, we have just kind of fallen off the job because we 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 tend to believe that if we just put out enough logical, rational, reasonable ideas, that they will kind of be disseminated through the culture. But when you're living in a culture that's post-rational, that's post-logical, you have to come at things in a very different direction. And and this was, you know, been my whole journey of, you know, I, I have a PhD in philosophy and then the realization that I, I can't use this, that this is not going to be a helpful tool to help me evangelize and bring healing to other women. I had to find a different route to, to get to that. Um, so that's really what Theology of Home is, is this effort to pr- approach women at a place that already feels natural. Um, our homes are such a great starting point. I, I think you could probably talk to anybody about their home. And, um, it, you know, either they would lament certain things about it or they would love certain things about it. But there could be a real conversation there that you could have with somebody about their home or their favorite home shows or um, decorating ideas. Um, and I think that that's where we need to start really is looking at how do we how do we spread these ideas through beauty and uh, you know even in the book we have images that i know aren't in women's magazines we have pregnant women featured we have people praying we have dads looking like dads and not looking like wimps we have a lot you know large families a lot of kids and they look happy and they're not a disaster (laughs) you know it's not freaks they're not freaks and yeah, they're, and, um, they, there was just this great joy to, I think to the book. So we wanted to just go on offense. You know, I've been, I think, again, we play defense so much with the church in terms of defending it and apologetics. And, um, but what we haven't realized is that, you know, we have this incredible evangelical tool right at our fingertips and that's called women. You know, we bring people into our homes all the time and we don't realize the power of that. So we can invite people over for dinner and they will come. They we might invite them to mass, and they would never come. But if we can get them into our homes, we can tell a, a, a story there that um, you know isn't going to be told in the public square. Um, so I, I think that's what this new book really and this effort is is to sort of how do we approach women, and not just Catholics, but I think Catholics need to be fed too. I think that's the other thing is you always hear, oh well, you're just preaching to the choir. Well, the choir needs some preaching. <laughs> the choir is out there really struggling, and um, how do we help? Catholic women realize that they're not alone, that they don't have to um, feel like they're kind of these social freaks because they don't fit into the Protestant stuff. They don't fit into the the secular stuff, but 
we've got our own stuff. How do we like start cultivating that and giving it to them in a beautiful way? Um, so anyway, I, I think it's just been a fun project, but it's also been, you know, one of those things that people have been really sitting up and taking notice because it's been selling so well. And, um, people are, I think women are just starving for it. And of course, you know, I've had plenty of men read it because of the, the interviews that I'm doing and they seem to love it too. So, um, yeah, I think that there's just something universally appealing about home, but also uh, just the fact that we have all of these beautiful ways to talk about it and to describe it and to understand it theologically. And then the comparison between the church and all these transcendentals of, um, you know, we can talk about light in our homes. We can talk about light in the church. We can talk about light in the scripture. You know, there's just all these very rich ideas, um, that, that I think, um, are what we go into. And so it's just fun to really, help people get to that place where they feel creative instead of anxious and afraid. And, um, that's mm -hmm. what so much of our content is doing right now is making people anxious and afraid. And that's very, really stifling, I think, especially to a soul that's trying to grow with God. You know, you're not going to grow deeper when you're, when you're feeling that kind of anxiety. Um, but if you're back to this place where you're, you feel like you can be creative and loving and giving yourself in very personal ways, um, that that's there's something important about that and i think that's really where evangelization happens when we are in that mode um in a healthy healthy pattern instead of the fearful pattern well first of all anyone who's read one line of your work will know that <laughs> none of your work is going to be fluff so <laughs> don't even worry about that <laughs> and well, also you. your book is selling well because i ordered it and i'm having to wait like two weeks for it and i'm just yeah. sitting yeah. on pins and needles <laughs> right where is it yeah no it keeps selling out that's good yeah, yeah that's good, i think but... we, the publisher keeps selling amazon buy more and they're like no we're only buying this many and then they're they run out in a week or i mean in two days <laughs> so yeah oh wow that's that's amazing yeah but i think right. I, oh my word i think that is you're so right on and i think um, at least for me, um, I won't speak for Beth, but you know, when you get woke to this whole feminist ideology, you start asking your question, these questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like you said, you can find tons of TV shows, tons of mm -hmm. magazines on how to decorate your home right? or how to design your home in a beautiful way, but it doesn't tell you how to make a home especially yeah. if you're Catholic, right. Right. how do you, how do you do these, these traditions? How mm -hmm. do you start them? How do you keep them going? Mm -hmm. What traditions to, yeah. you know, are good and, and, right. and, and fruitful. And right. so I think this is, this is yeah. not just preaching to the choir. It's giving, you right. know, water to parched people in the desert. So yeah. I'm excited. No. And I, I think we are starving. I mean, even just looking at Joanna Gaines's success, I mean, she's, she was polling more popular than Oprah at one point. I haven't checked recently. Um, but here's this woman that, you know, by all accounts is pretty ordinary woman and, you know, she's clearly Protestant. She clearly loves children, loves her own children. And, um, and the fact that people are so drawn to that, I, I, I'm just praying, you know, producers will start paying attention that there really is this thread of women who, um, long for that. But I, I think also just even how do we defend homemaking? You know, this is not some sort of awful um, imprisonment sentence that you get when you have to, when you have to be home with your kids, but this is an incredible opportunity to gift amazing things. And, you know, even in the church, I think that there's kind of this, um, it's not spoken about, but this sort of underlying idea that, 
you know, our homes need to be austere and they need to, you know, it's okay if they're shabby and it's okay if they're a mess, you know, this sort of, um, and I'm, I'm a homeschooling mom, so our house is a mess all, constantly. So I'm not critical <laughs> of that, but the, the point being that um, there, there isn't a sense that this is an important piece, that our homes really are a sanctuary where, you know, it, it's an incredible gift to give comfort and a sense of safety and nourishment, you know, all of these things to the people that we love um, rather than mayhem and chaos. And, um, and even just uh, kind of this sense of you have to live in a way that looks like you're austere or something. So, you know, not recognizing that these, you know, throw pillows are important and there's something about them, the, the well curated home, um, even if it is not luxurious, um, that, that goes into it, that a woman can bring to it in a way that, you know, men don't. And, uh, you know, so this isn't going to come at the parish level, but we have to do this for each other as Catholic women and support each other um, in this way, because it's just, it's not coming in in this specific mode anywhere from anywhere else, I think at this point. Wonderful. Beth, do you have any, any other questions? No, just thank you so much. Everything you said, you say it so beautifully. <laughs> when you say the stuff, I'm like, oh, goodness, exactly what you. I mean, but I could never say it as oh, Well, I've had a lot of time to think about it and, um, <laughs> A lot of time to talk about, and I always feel like I'm being a little bit too long-winded. So, um, thank you for your forbearance. But uh, <laughs> no. yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's really exciting to sort of think about just having a new way to support women. And, um, you know, we know a, a woman is healthy and happy and ordered. It's infectious, and that's how the faith has spread in the past, and that's how I think it can happen in the future. Um, is to, to give women back what's been taken from us and, and, and not in a way that we're, we want to go back to the 1950s, but in a way um, it's new. And, and that, you know, that's the beauty of the Holy spirit is we don't have to go back and look like something of old necessarily, but it can, it can have this fresh feeling and, um, and feel vibrant and life-giving again. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for coming My pleasure. Us today again. This has been an enormous pleasure and we hope um, you can do it again sometime in the future. I'd love to. Thanks so much, ladies. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode from um, Freed from Feminism. Uh, tune in again uh, in another couple of weeks for another episode. And we will see you soon. God bless. <laughs>